All right. All right. I think we're good. <laughs> so uh, welcome to Healing the Voice, the people that have been silenced. We share stories of our life, traumas, um, experience, strength, and hope. Um, sometimes sharing your story can give you healing and it can help others get through whatever situation they're dealing with. Um, every podcast I give out resources, the national suicide hotline number is 1-800-273-8255. That is a 24 hour hotline, um, in medical emergencies, you can always dial 911 and then the SAMHSA treatment helpline is one eight seven 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 two six four seven two seven. That is for um, addiction, substance abuse. They are open Monday through Friday, eight a.m. to eight p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, today we have Corinne, and um, she is a part of my story. I'm a part of her story, and um, she reached out to me, and we got in touch, and now we're going to record. And um, so. Tonight, I give you Miss Corinne. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I've uh, been wondering what I was really going to just talk about, but I think I'm just going to try to um, talk about everything. So um, I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that is how I found my hope and my faith and um, actually my life. Um, so, you know, but I'm not going to really share a lot about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous until the very end. Um, so yeah, so I guess, you know, I was, um, I was born to two addicts, um, my mother and my father, um, and, you know, life wasn't really hard in the beginning, Um, it was actually pretty decent. I had, you know, um, my mom was very loving and nurturing and she actually took the time to find out how we felt and how, and make sure that we did feel loved and we did feel needed, um, which is kind of important for kids at a young age, um, every age actually. So, you know, um, I didn't really have an issue with my mom. It was more or less my father. My father um, was addicted to crack cocaine. And uh, he also, that also came with a lot of anger issues. And, um, you know, the highs and lows that, you know, cocaine and crack can give you, um, it really takes a toll on your mental state. So he, um, you know, wasn't very easy to be around a lot of the time. And I didn't know that at a young age, when you're young, you just think you take everything personally, like it's you, you think um, you're either too young that you don't recognize anything, or once you get to a certain age, everything's about you. Um, So I thought that there was something wrong with me. Um, And, you know, life went on. Um, You know, my dad came from money, so we always had a really good like upbringing we were spoiled and taken care of so you know jump to when I was nine years old they divorced because my dad's addiction led led him to some weird places um you know he was cheating on my mom 
um, he was acting just irrational and angry and just, he was unbearable to live with. So my mom decided to take me and my brother and get us the hell out of there. Um, so she filed for divorce and my little brother is five years younger than me. So, um, you know, he was young. I was nine. He was about four. So he doesn't really remember the good parts of our life. He just remembers, you know, the sad and turmoil um, that our life had after that. My dad obviously was um, a very mean person. So he took uh, all the money. He took all of our financial, you know, um, assets from us. And he gave us nothing but help. Um, And, you know, at a young age, I really didn't know like the ins and outs of all that but I do know now that my mom struggled very hard and that's where my mom's addiction comes in you know she was so stressed out and after being in a hectic marriage she let loose and at the expense of me and my brother so I was left to take care of my brother for a while for years um, while she went out and cleared her head and partied and you know, just wanted to do her own thing. Um, which of course I understand now, but then I felt abandoned. I felt abandoned by my father. I felt abandoned by my mom, um, all other family members. And, um, you know, there comes a point in time where you, when you're put up, when you're young and you're given a situation where you're forced to grow up, you resent everybody eventually for forcing you to grow up and have to become an adult at a young age. And that happened to me. I resented everybody. And that caused me to want to say, fuck rules. Uh, I'm sorry. Am I allowed to curse? Yes, you are. All right. (laughs) That caused me to say, fuck rules, fuck people. You know, I'm not listening to teachers. I'm not listening to the law. I'm not listening to anybody who thinks that they can tell me what to do. Um, my mom would get different boyfriends and I'd have the same attitude every time, you know, fuck you. You're not my dad. I'm not listening to you. I don't care about you. Um, and I became very resentful and that's how I stayed for a very long time. And I, to the point where I thought that that was kind of cool. Um, I was very rebellious and I, I prided myself on going against the grain and, um, not being so much as a law abiding citizen. Um, so I grew up, um, pretty early once my parents divorced, I used to do good in school. Um, I never really failed until I got to high school. Uh, I failed one class, actually two. I failed gym and I failed English, um, because I just was never at school. I started skipping a lot. I just didn't want I just thought I wanted to do what I wanted to do. You know, like I was more interested in having fun, um, doing drugs. You know, I found my first drug when I was 11, which was my mom's pills. And I took them. Um, I realized they did something for me. So I chased that. And I I experimented with a ton of different things. Obviously, weed, um, alcohol, alcohol. you know, but 
I started when I got 14 or 15, I decided like, uh, the people that I, I held around me, I kept around me because I grew up in a fairly rich area. Um, and you know, at, if my parents stayed together, I probably would have fit in. Um, but they didn't. And that left us very broke, um, in debt. And so we did not fit in, in my school. Um, so I immediately like clung to the other outcasts like me. And of course we, uh, tried drugs early on more way more earlier than everybody else in my school. Um, so, you know, we did, I guess we just, we just wanted to smoke weed party screw school. We didn't want to go. We skipped a lot of the days. Um, I think I was in truancy court for about four years because I just did not want to go to school. And um, I decided to finally go and they took me off truancy. Finally, um, when they decided to threaten my mom and go to jail Um, and it wasn't her fault, you know, like, and I said that to the judge, it's not her fault. I sneak out the window and I climb back in when she goes to work. (laughs) Like she had no idea, you know what I mean? But she did, or she did. And she just couldn't do anything about it because she had to go to work and, you know, provide for her, for me and my brother. So that's that, you know? Um, And from there, it just got worse. I experimented with all different drugs. Um, You know, the first hard drug that I picked up was methamphetamine. And I was about 14 or 15 years old. Um, And, you know, I had, we had, um, my mom had tons of different friends and a lot of them weren't good. Um, They were not good influences, especially on a young, angry teenager. Um, And a lot of them, all of them used drugs, many different kinds. Um, They all partied, you know, and although I know my mom didn't want that for me, she was just so blind, blind by her own shit going on that uh, she was incapable of giving me the attention that I desperately needed. Um, So, you know, I picked up methamphetamine when I was like 14, 15 years old. Um, You know, I was careless. I was dating some kid from Texas um, and I got pregnant very young, uh, about twice. Um, and I decided that I was too young to have children. So I terminated the pregnancy, not to mention I was also doing meth and that scared me. Um, so, you know, I have a lot of trauma from when I was growing up, you know, very young. My first memory when I was like four, I was sexually abused by my uncle and then, you know, and then the drugs and then my parents leaving and like all this emotional abuse that I endured by my dad and all kinds of stuff, you know, and like just that insane outcast feeling that I never fit in um, being judged by the kids at school. Like all these things took a toll on me um, and you don't really realize it and you don't recognize it. But, um, you know, I didn't know how to mentally handle or prepare it for it you know so i did what so i knew how. right Corinne? yeah um, <clears throat> you know once i came into recovery i got a job in the field and uh i learned a lot right and um trauma 
starts in the womb. A lot of people don't even know this, that if, if a mom and dad are, she's pregnant and there's fighting and tension. And even if the mom herself is just tense yeah, and there's no abuse, there's no like actual trauma to the actual baby. Trauma starts in the womb. Then when I was in rehab, right, they said they asked 15 questions and it was like dumb questions. Like, have you ever survived a natural disaster, like a hurricane or 9-11 or, and I was like, yep. Were your parents divorced? Yep. Do any of your parents go to go to jail or anybody in your close family go to jail? Yep. I answered all 15 questions as yes. None of them had to do with sexual assault or physical abuse or neglect. Only till the age of 18. Right? Okay. I'm like, I was, you know, I'm very boisterous. And there was only two people in the entire rehab that had 15s. And I was one of them. And I'm like, well, what does this mean for me? Like, you know what I mean? And they said that, like, the the part of your brain, that trauma, even as simple as surviving through 9-11, it affects the same part of your brain that drugs does, that sex does, that food does, that sleep does. So experiencing even the slightest amount of trauma before your brain is able to be developed affects your decision making affects what that feel good sensor means you know like yeah the fact that like you can acknowledge that like your mom did her best you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like that's that's progress that's growth you know because a lot of times like I have a similar kind of story and when I was young, I was like, well, nobody gives a fuck about me. So I'm not going to give a fuck about nothing else, you know? Right. And, and I blamed everybody else. And instead of saying, you know what, like, maybe my parents weren't ever taught how to be decent human beings, you know, and they're 50 years old at this point. So, you know what, like, they haven't changed this far. Right. probably going to change now you know what I mean yeah. like so but go ahead I'm sorry no 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 thanks um so yeah uh so I endured a lot of trauma when I was younger um and and up until not too long ago like a couple years ago when I decided to get sober um so I um you know in high school I really really took off when it came to um authority like i forget there's a there's a word for it when you have authority like um problems where you just can't follow direction and you just don't want to listen to anybody um but that really took off for me when i got later on in high school um and i think it had a lot to do with the drugs that i was doing and the people i admired you know, like I started looking up to like rock stars who are drug addicts or, you know, anybody who like our modern music today is all about drugs. And it's, um, you know, it's a shame, but like, that's what I liked and that's what I aspired to be. And I had no idea the pain and agony that it was going to cause. Um, so needless to say, I did finish high school um I graduated and 
you know, I made it, which is like one of the greatest accomplishments because looking back at it, there was no way to tell that I was actually going to do it. Um, but I did. And that's when I, before I graduated, I found the love of my life, which was heroin. Um, the thing that absolutely gave me everything I ever had been looking for. Um, you know, some people don't understand, but you know, addicts and alcoholics, they, they, they seek the drug and alcohol because they want to escape their reality because the reality is just too painful. Um, their life is just too painful and they need to escape that reality. And that's why we turn to drugs and alcohol because it gives us something. It calms us. It makes us feel better. It changes our personality that we find to be more acceptable to other people, you know, like all kinds of things like that. So I found heroin and my life um, got turned inside out and I didn't notice it. I just thought that it was fun and I thought that I felt good and I didn't really care and it took my pain away and it, it made my brain stop thinking and um, I had friends, you know, that were all doing it. So I wanted to keep up with them and I was always hanging out with older people and um, so they were already ahead of the times than me. But, um, you know, <laughs> a lot of the drug use that I was doing uh, was affecting my brain heavily because I, it wasn't fully, it wasn't fully uh Fin finished growing you know what I mean and I didn't know that and um you know it affected me quite a bit um now that I'm older and I can look back at it you know and um so I immediately moved out of my mom's house I found um a significant other that I decided to date and we were dr we were drug dealers uh only to um, support our habit. So we were dealing drugs and doing the drugs and it was just a constant, very fast life, um, all around hurting a lot of different people. We were robbing, stealing, you know, and, um, we did a lot of, uh, things that would qualify us as terrible people. Um, you know, and like that I'm ashamed of doing. Um, but now looking back at it and changing my life, um, I needed to go through those things and I needed to burn the bridges that I had. And I needed to do all those different things to like be shoved in a corner to realize like I have nothing else. And like, of course I hurt those people. And of course I made those amends to those people. And, um, you know, a lot of them didn't want to hear anything from me. They, they wanted me to die and they wanted me out of their life and they didn't want to see me ever again. And that was okay because I hurt them and they just, you know, they deserved to feel the way they wanted to feel. Um, but you know, being a drug addict and an alcoholic really, um, it sets you up for this destruction that the only way you're going to be able to live a life of somewhat dignity is if you clean all that destruction back up. You know what I mean? After you put the, put down the drugs and alcohol. And, um, a lot of times people can't have made too much destruction and, and their past is way too dirty to clean up that it's like, eh, I'm just going to do it when I want to do it or it's not going to happen. And 
where do they find themselves? You know what I mean? Like there comes a time where it's and like, I think I think with with that same thing, like for my biological family, they all still to this day hope that I die. They still continue to wish wish that I would relapse and overdose. They testified against me to lose my daughter. They have called child protective services several times on me. It's like, uh, I'm just gonna do it when I want to do it, or it's not gonna happen. And where do they find themselves? You know what I mean? Like, there comes a time where. It's and like- I think I think with with that same thing, like for my biological family, they all still to this day hope that I die. They still continue to wish wish that I would relapse and overdose. They testified against me to lose my daughter. They have called child protective services several times on me. Um, and there is no making amends there. You know, I can't contact them and say, hey, I got four years clean. Like, yeah, I'm, you know, like, because yeah. and guess my spot for a sponsor said, that's okay. That's on them. Like, our responsibility is clear up our side of the street. And they right. may not see me as anything different than a, a junkie from Kensington. Right. You know, so, like, and that's fine, you know, and, and a lot of people don't realize that. And like, then I look at other people and I'm like, you know what, like, my husband has caused 28 years of, of damage, you know, and people accepted his recovery, you know, and he's mended relationships with his family. And I'm like, it sometimes hurts, because I'm like, my family will never see the greatness in my life today. Mm. You know? Yeah, I do. At the same time, I can't allow their opinion of me to push me back out there. I totally agree. I totally agree. There's going to be a lot of instances where the people just aren't willing to um, not only accept an apology, but to accept you back in their life or to um, see you any different than what you did to them and aren't able to move past and like there comes a time where it's like, it's more detrimental to me not to accept that part. Um, you know what I mean? Like if I just sit and, 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 um, remind myself, like they don't, they won't, they won't accept my apology. They don't want anything to do with me. Right. If I don't at least take a good look at that as that being theirs, that's their shit. It's not mine. Right. Um, that's detrimental because it's like, there's some people are just that like they are who they are and that's their shit and they're entitled to feel whatever way they want to feel um whether it hurts me or not and it is going to hurt me but you know I have to remember in the long scheme that like this is my life I'm trying to save and I can't worry about about me because if I did I would have never been able to accumulate the time sober that I have you know what I mean let alone like a clear mind that would have never been tangible for me. And, uh, you know, so like I totally get that more than I think I get anything because there's a lot of people that don't want to hear from me. You know what I mean? And like a part of, um, our amends process is like, it's, it says like we make amends to those who, um, uh, we don't, we like, so we make an amends, we make amends to people, but we do it without hurting them. Right. And we don't make amends to people that is that it, the end result is just going to hurt them. So like ourselves. 
Right. So, um, for instance, like there's many friends that I've had, um, who I have slept with their boyfriends. You know what I mean? Like, that's something I can't make an amends to because that will, and, and they don't know, you know what I mean? Um, so like, that's just more painful than it is helpful. And, um, so I won't do that. So what I do is I live better just to prove to people that like, you know, it's possible and, you know, I can do it, but like, I'm not going to go out of my way to try to clean something selfishly because I want to feel better because I'm just going to cause them pain. You know what I mean? But back to what I was saying, you know, and just like how, um, heroin took complete control of me. It was, um, it was insane. My life was insanity. Um, I was alone really in the grand scheme of things. Like I had people around because I sold drugs, but that was the only reason why people were around. So it's like kind of, it was a really sad existence. Um, and it only got worse. You know, you mentioned Kensington and like, that's where I practically lived, um, during the day or during the night or both. I'd be out there for hours upon days upon, you know, weeks, um, and then I'd return home and I'd, you know, scheme off of my mom until she kicked me out again and I'd, I'd go back. Um, right. And that's what I did for years. And then I'd find myself in jail. And I think that's where um, things really got shitty and lonely for me is when uh, I got caught up in the law. Um, and, you know, it, it, it Obviously, it was going to happen because I kept breaking laws and I kept doing stupid things and I kept using drugs out in the open and acting like an idiot. You know what I mean? Which um, so obviously that happened. Um, I just I got caught up in the system and it chewed me up and spit me out. And that's where I met you. You know what I mean? And like um, I did a lot of shitty things and I did some even crazier shitty things in jail um, if you could imagine that and like (laughs) you know like being in jail didn't stop me from getting high and um that's how powerful my addiction is um you know like being locked up you think like you're away from everything you can't get it but my brain doesn't stop and my manipulation doesn't stop and all the bad things about me just don't stop and it's impossible to find anything good in me because I'm in a, such a deep, dark place of depression that, like, it's impossible to see a way out. You know what I mean? Especially when you're there. So right. um, that caused me to reach out to you uh, while you were working there and ask you to bring me in drugs. And, um, you know, obviously we've had this talk and like that. Now I can look at it as um, something I'm regretful of doing. Um, then I did not care if you got fired. I did not care if I hurt anybody else. I did not care if I got caught even. Um, I just wanted to feel good. You know what I mean? And I was just being selfish and self-centered. And that's all I've ever been was selfish. I've only looked out for myself and I've only cared about how I feel and how I um, am treated, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, 
I think now that opened my eyes, um, getting sober and looking back at shit that I used to do has opened my eyes. But, you know, in that moment, I didn't know what I was doing was wrong. Well, no, I knew what I was doing was wrong, but I didn't, I didn't see the severity of what I was doing was wrong. You know what I mean? And, um, how many people were really, truly getting hurt. So, you know, my, so my life went like this in my twenties, I get, I get arrested for doing drugs, right? I'd go to jail. I'd spend some time there on a probation violation. Um, I'd either get released to a rehab or I'd get out and I would immediately get high again either that night or up, it would take me a couple days, a week. Uh, I never went longer than a month. So I immediately would get high and then I'd end up right back. So it got to a point where um, the jail was my second home. And when I got there, people knew me. I was respected. People liked me. I got things that other people didn't get like nail clippers and tweezers and you know, makeup, which is contraband. Um, it got to a point where I would get a TV off of somebody because I knew everybody in there. And, you know, so it is the, the sad part about all that is like that to me was cool. Like I, I found a place where people liked me. Like that's all I've ever been looking for. Like a place where I felt at home, where people liked me. And wanted me to be around. You know what I mean? Whether it was fake or not. That's how I felt. And um, you know. And unfortunately for me. Jail was one of those places. That um, I knew everybody there. I felt popular per se. I felt wanted. Um, I felt like people wanted me around. And wanted to be my friend. And uh, that to me was different and it's what I've always been looking for. So every time I ended up there, of course, it sucked kicking the heroin and being in withdrawals. Um, But once I finally got acclimated, it wasn't so bad. And I know that that sounds crazy, but it really that's truly how it was. And that's truly how I felt. And, you know, that's the sick part of it. But, you know. That's why I say, like, I was always just looking for someone to accept me and to be friends with me because that's where that comes from. That's those feelings are why I didn't mind going to jail. You know what I mean? So, like, the people that think I'm crazy for saying that, like, jail wasn't that bad, like, you need to understand it's because I always, I never fit in anywhere else. And unfortunately, a criminal like me fit in great there. You know what I mean? And, like, that's where I made a lot of friends. Um, friends that I haven't kept um, due to many different reasons but you know it's just where I ended up and that's where God put me and he also you know he also put me there a lot um, because I put myself there really in the grand scheme of things I ended up there a ton of times um, and I didn't learn from anything, from any of it, each time it just got worse. So I'd get out and I progressively got worse with my addiction. I would find myself in Kensington, um, you know, sleeping under a bridge, just waiting to get a dollar to smoke crack with somebody. 
um, and shoot a fucking bag, you know, like it got out of control. And then to a point where one of the times I got out of jail or one of the times I went to jail, one of the girls in there was a prostitute. And uh, she talked to me about some internet site and how she made money. And to me, in that moment, uh, it sounded crazy. But she kept talking about it and kept talking about it. And the more she did, the more appealing it became. And, um, you know, once I got out, you know, I tried to do what I was trying to do on my own. And then I remembered when it got, when everything like got really hard and I couldn't make any money and my mom was done with me, she kicked me out and I was staying at some random person's house, you know, it came to me, I should try this. Um, because it couldn't, it might not be that hard. And so that's, that's where my addiction took me. Uh, I became, you know, so I, I, I started tricking, um, for my money and that actually worked for a long time. Um, I mean, it, it obviously took a really big toll, um, on my self-worth more than I already had. Like if I had any self-worth before I did it, you know, it really diminished to a, a, like a non-existent point. Um, so Corinne, let me say this real quick for those listening. Um, they say in the rooms, never say never because like, it's always not yet. Like you just said, like that, cause that thought of like tricking was crazy to you. Yeah. You know, like a lot of people can say, oh, I would never do that. I would never trick for money. I would never do that. No, 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 no. But not yet because there's going to be a moment of desperation and there's going to be a moment where you're like, you know what? That might be okay. And we sacrifice all our morals and values and put everything aside and we do what we said we would never do. Right. So if you're listening and you're thinking, oh, that's crazy, I would never. If you're still out there, just know that it, it could be not yet. You may never. Everybody's story is different. You may never do that. But don't say, oh, I would never. Don't look down on somebody because you may not have ever done that. You may not have ever um, struggled to find money to get high. But at, at the end, the feeling is the same. Broken. Yeah. Yeah, so um, thank you, because, um, you know, that's, it, it did a lot to me, you know what I mean? It, um, it numbed me to a point where, like, um, and took me to even a darker place than my addiction ever could have, um, you know, so doing that for years, I, um, I did a lot to my self-worth, you know, and um, because of that, I kept doing it. Like it's this deep, dark circle, right? Like uh, I'll never be able to get out of it because I can never stop using drugs. And because I can't stop using drugs, I need to make money to use the drugs. So, and the only way I know how to make the money is to do what I know I have to do. And, you know, and I can't stop doing that because I can't find a real job because I'm on drugs. You know what I mean? It's like this whole circle. And, um, and I didn't know that there was way out. Um, so I continue to live that, that way for a while. Um, 
you know, I have done some things with friends of mine, you know, that um, we both did it together. And because that's all we knew, like, we didn't know that there was, you know, like, it came to a point where it was like, I literally, that's all I did. You know what I mean? I used, I used, I used from morning till morning (laughs) because I never slept. Um, So, you know, obviously back in jail again. And this time um, it's somewhat serious. I still have probation for two years and this is now my fifth violation. So I know I'm doing some time and I go in there uh, knowing that I'm going to be there for a long time. And I run into a good friend of mine and we became roommates, um, sellies, you know, you call it. And we just, we made the best of what we had. You know what I mean? And we spent six months together and then I stayed, I got my back time, which was two years. So I had to be in, in the County jail for about, 21 months. And, um, so I did that, um, which was one of the hardest moments I've ever had to go through, but it taught me a lot. It taught me how to deal with people that I didn't like and and tolerate them. It taught me to follow direction somewhat. Um, it taught me a lot about myself as well. Like, you know, what I do and don't want for the rest of my life. Um, so that friend I had, you know, we grew up together. We went to the same school. She bought drugs off of me. I um, got high with her. We went to rehab together. We went to jail together. So I get out. And um, this time I'm like, you know, I'm going to stay sober. I'm not going to not gonna pick up. But I am not going to do a 12-step fellowship because I didn't even know about it yet. So, you know, I... Um, I ended up in a rehab um, because I wanted to get on Suboxone because I thought that was a good idea. And um, so I go to the rehab, I get out and I go to a recovery house in Philly. And we're in this recovery house. It was very relaxed. Um, it was more or less just like pay us and you can have a place to stay and give a clean urine once a week. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't um, very strict. There wasn't many rules other than you need to pay your rent and give a clean urine. So I obviously, um, what did I do? Oh yeah. I got put on, I got put on, um, Suboxone and I was actually using them less as less than they were prescribed. Um, but I was feeling the effects from it. So it didn't really matter. Um, And boom, I get a random call one day from my best friend. Um, Her name was Rania. And she called me and she said that she was getting off of the plane in the city. She just got off the plane. She was coming home or she was coming back from a rehab in Florida. And she was looking for a bed in a recovery house. And boom, I had four beds open in my recovery house. And I wanted my friend to live with me. And so I told her come move in like there's four other beds and I would love to have you here so what does she do she comes over that night she moves in um the day she moved in like literally her boyfriend dropped her off all her stuff off and said goodbye 
once he got in his car and wasn't even he didn't even put it in in drive yet she looked at me and she said i'm going to kensington you're either coming with me or you're not and i don't want to hear anything about it and it put me in the shitty position because i really wasn't using uh heroin i was just you know taking my suboxone and uh which i was getting high from but you know in my head at that moment i wasn't so like i wasn't in a serious addiction you know what i mean which now looking back on it, I was still dependent upon it. Um, and it was giving me what I wanted, which was <laughs> an escape from my reality. Um, right. But whatever. So she said, you're either coming with me or you're not. Well, I did go with her. I went with her to make sure that she didn't die. And I did not use, um, which was very hard for me because that was our spot that we went. And it was hard for me to watch her use and shoot up and smoke crack and all that. So we came home. I got to cover for her. You know, I lied to my house manager and said that she was fine. You know, she was just on her sleep medication. She just got out of rehab. So she's tired and she's going to go to bed next day. Same thing this time. Uh, so I go with her and this time I end up uh, smoking crack. And I remember being like, why the fuck did I do that? I don't feel good. Now I want to just go home. I want to come down. I need to go take my 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 sleep medication. I'm just going to sleep it off. Like, I don't feel good. I don't know why I did this. Immediate regret. Um, but I needed to go with her because in my eyes and my mind, she was going to be in trouble if somebody didn't watch out for her. Um, so I went with her. And, you know, we actually she didn't die and I did not use um which was very hard for me because that was our spot that we went and it was hard for me to watch her use and shoot up and smoke crack and all that so we came home I got to cover for her you know I lied my house manager and said that she was fine you know she was just on her sleep medication she just got out of rehab so she's tired and she's gonna go to bed next day same thing this time Uh, So I go with her and this time I end up uh, smoking crack. And I remember being like, why the fuck did I do that? I don't feel good. Now I want to just go home. I want to come down. I need to go take my, my, my sleep medication. I'm just going to sleep it off. Like, I don't feel good. I don't know why I did this immediate regret. Um, But I needed to go with her because in my eyes and my mind, she was going to be in trouble if somebody didn't watch out for her. Um, So I went with her and, you know, we actually had, um, despite the fact that we were both under the influence, we both had a really good talk. Um, we walked together, we, we talked about a lot of things. Um, you know, I owed her apologies for shit that I did to her and vice versa. So we talked about a lot of shit. Um, and when we came home, I did the same thing. I covered for her again. Um, and then the third day. Same thing. Although this time I said, I'm not going with you. I can't. Um, I don't want to use. And, you know, last time, like the day before, uh, she was down there way too long. I was tired. I had blisters on my feet from walking and these shoes that weren't comfortable. So I told her, I'm not going with you. And her mom came, dropped her off about a, like 30 bucks. And I know her mom, so I sat there and talked to her mom. And before her mom left, she said, she looked at me dead in the eyes and said, please watch over her. And I said, I would. And um, her mom left. And then 
Rania looked at me and said, well, I'm going. And I said, okay, I'm staying here. Be careful. Call me if you need me. I'll be here. So I knew how she used, and she was an extremist. She always used the max. She always tried to get, you know, um, as much as what she could, you know what I mean? And do as much as she could and, you know, feel as good as she could. So I knew that there was something to worry about because I know her and I knew that she was probably doing an insane amount. Um, but I knew she only had $30. So I thought, so I wasn't too worried, but whatever. So I wait hours and hours go by and finally she gets off the bus and I was outside. Uh, there was a park right next to the, um, right next to the bus stop that she got out that I just so happened to be at the park. So I was, I see her get off the bus and I run over to her and I say, Hey, are you okay? And she had this dirt mark all over her back, but she was wearing my clothes. So I was like, yo, what happened to your pants and my shirt? Like my pants and my shirt, dude, like they're dirty. And she was like, I'll buy you a new pair. I'm sorry. And that's when I knew something was wrong. And, um, but she told me she was fine. So my house manager noticed something was wrong. Talked to her. She told my house manager that, uh, she overdosed and they hit her with Narcan and not to tell me. So, because she knew I'd freak out. And my house manager told me, but told me not to tell her I knew. So, you know, I went to check on her. I had to pretend like I didn't know anything. She knew I knew. And like, I knew she knew I knew. But we just had that, you know, that understanding that we weren't going to talk about it. So... Mm-hmm. Before she got in the shower, she told me that she loved me and that she, you know, wanted to watch the show with me. And she got in the shower, and um, that was the last time I ever saw or talked to her. Uh, I had to kick down the bathroom door, and I found her dead. Um, mm. And I had to try to bring her back, and it didn't work. Um, and that was where <laughs> that was where. God intervened in my life. I didn't see it then. I see it now. But that's really where not only my addiction and my my mental health took a turn for the worse, but like actually God presented himself and um it was actually quite an amazing thing because although I just lost my best friend and I found somebody dead you know what I mean? Which is traumatic in itself. Um, I now have this outlook to look at. Right. So like, what's my perception is my perception. Like she died and I'm a terrible friend and it was my fault. And am I going to shame myself? And am I going to guilt myself because she died? Um, or can I look at it? Like, you know, why did she die with me? You know, what, what was, why am I supposed to be, why was I supposed to witness this? Why was it supposed to happen to me? Right. Um, how would she want me to feel? How would she want me to view view this? And like, you know, I came up with the conclusion that she died with me because we were so close and, um, you know, I was meant to say goodbye to her first. You know what I mean? And I also came up with the conclusion that she was in so much pain that she just didn't want to live anymore. And, you know, it's now my job and duty to live in her um, existence. You know what I mean? And keep saying, and 
to continue stay sober because she can't, you know what I mean? So like, it's all about your perception and, um, how I view things. So when I'm going to real quick, um, that is such a powerful, I guess, story, right? Because, um, when you first met me at the prison, I don't know if you remember all this or not, but, um, I was raped by a sergeant there. Yeah. And do you remember? Yeah. So Annie Prince was this girl for the, um, she was in there for murder, was facing life. She had three young kids and had the most positive and loving attitude Mm -hmm. ever. So I came in back to work after being out for like two weeks after the rape and everybody knew about it and I was appalled and I was like so when the DA didn't take my case because alcohol and drugs were involved um I was I remember saying to Annie like why me why the fuck did God let this happen to me and she said to me back why not you and at first I was like the fuck you mean why not me like why why right <laughs> and she said one day you're gonna share your story with somebody and it's gonna help them get through whatever situation they're in mm. and like you can sit there and question like why did she have to die like oh i'm a terrible friend her mom told me her last words were look out for you know but like somebody else out there right now is dealing with that yeah. This happened this morning. And you sharing that and saying like now I live because she can't. Yeah. And that's 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 the hope that this whole podcast is about and why I do this and why I want to continue doing this because even I, somebody said to me, oh, well, I don't really have nothing like serious to share. And I'm like, but somebody out there can get something from everybody's story. And uh, it really like it sucks, right? Like there's things that happen to us and it really sucks. Like to find your best friend, that really fucking sucks. Yeah that's pain you know that's 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 and and when I first started getting high I was like all the shit that I've been through like people would understand people would understand why the fuck I get high who wouldn't yeah right (laughs) who would find their best friend dead and wouldn't go out there and get, get high right yeah if you lived like me you would you you'd use too right you know and, uh, you know, that's, that's, it's crazy because when she first, when she died, um, of course I didn't stay sober, but I, um, my addiction didn't progress in a way of the amount, how often I was using and how much I was using, right? It actually it diminished, but before after I saw you at Gadenzia, huh? Did that happen before or after, after. I saw that? Okay. Literally right after, because when I left Gaudenzia is when I went to that recovery house. And that's when she moved in. So literally like weeks 
or a, a few months after that. Okay. Um. Yeah. So, it my my addiction didn't progress in the amount or the how often I was using or anything like that. It actually, that actually declined. However, um, my spirituality was non-existent. Like I was very resentful towards God and I was resentful towards all human beings because they were still living and my friend was dead um, and all kinds of shit. You know what I mean? I just was not in a right mental place. Um, but I remember the next year I found myself in a, yet another rehab um, and having the biggest spiritual awakening in my life and uh, realizing like that, like, like, so on her year anniversary, I was in this other rehab and um, I had these crazy, crazy things that happened to me. Um, like, you know, there was a medium apparently there and I don't know if everybody believes in that or not. I don't really care. Um, but what I do know is that she said to me some things that apparently uh, only me and Rania knew. And, you know, it shocked me. And what she said was that Rania can, uh, contacted her and told her, like, to tell me not to blame myself and to let it go and that she's okay and that now I have to live and work on me. And I hold that dear to my, my heart now because it's like, you know, a lot of my friends have died. Tons and tons and tons of my friends have died. You know, I, like I said, I grew up with a bunch of other outcasts like me. All of them are practically dead. Um, except for me. And it leads me, it leaves me questioning, why am I still here? And every single time I get the same answer because I'm not finished because there's something and somebody out there that I'm supposed to either learn or help teach. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, doing this podcast is like one of them, you know what I mean? Like just, passing on my story and talking to other women in sobriety or, you know, um, trying to help anybody and everybody, even people who aren't addicts who are just having a bad day. You know what I mean? Like it's my duty to try to bring as much hope and, and joy in the world that I can now that I'm able to do that. And, uh, you know, so after she died, it was rough, but I got to a point where, um, I knew recovery was possible. Right. Because I, I, I met a lot of people um, and I seen the way they lived their life and I saw the way they worked a program. And that was really intriguing to me. So I tried it. Um, I didn't stay sober, unfortunately, but I did try it. So I learned that there was a different way. Um, and, you know, I. I, the, I think. I finally decided to do it um, and really give it my all last August, uh, August 2007 or 2019 um, is when I decided to, to really, really, really try. And that's when I got sober and that's how long I've been sober. I've been sober a little over, um, I want to say it's been 13 months now. Um, and, you know, I have learned more than I think I could have ever and nothing high school teaches you prepares you for what real life can be like sometimes, you know? So I never really knew 
anything about this kind of shit. And uh, I had to learn it all the hard way, all the hard way, which means I had to go through a lot of pain and agony, but I did it and I lived through it and I learned from it. And now I use it for good. Um, and like I said, I was in AA. I, I work a 12-step fellowship out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I've completed all my 12 steps. Um, and not a day goes by where um, I don't thank God for bringing me as far as I've come. And, and also, on the flip side of that, remember how far I've come from what I came from. You know what I mean? Right. Like, there's a lot of um, not so great memories, but they are what keep me who I am. You right. know what I mean? What you did doesn't define you. It never did. Right. It doesn't define who you are. And that was my biggest thing that I had to learn. Right. Because like I said, the things that I've done um, were very detrimental to my mental health and to my self-worth and to my self-love and, you know, all that stuff. And um, I had to learn throughout this whole program that like, that's not who I am. Right. It's what I had to do. It's how I had to survive. Um, because my addiction was so strong that it overcame everything else and that's okay. And, you know, like there's somebody else out there who has done what I've done, if not worse. And they think that it's impossible to get life back. Right. And they want to kill themselves, but like, here comes the ability to tell them that that's not true. Right. Right. Because I'm still here. And like, if you were to talk to any friends that I grew up with, who used with me, who are actually still alive, or people who have seen me in and out of jail, hopeless, and like, just in awe, like, and just in shame, you know what I mean? Like, they would tell you, we never thought Corinne was going to live. We never thought she was going to make it. We just thought she was either going to die an addict, or she was going to live somehow uh, forever as an addict. And that's cool, you know, because that's, that's what I made people think because that's on the path, the path I was on, but that's not the fact anymore, you know? And like, I'm here, I'm working a program. I'm happy. I have a great relationship with a great man that, you know, I was never deserving of before. And for some reason I deserve that now. You know what I mean? Because of all this hard work that I have done to make myself a better person. And, you know, I just, I totally urge people who are listening to this, who think like there's not a way out that there totally is, um, you know, if people were back in the day, like when I'd go to rehabs with no intention to go to a meeting, I'd hear people that would come into the rehab to speak and they'd say, get a pro get, you know, go to a meeting, get a sponsor or work a 12 step. I would laugh and say, I'm going to figure this out my way. I'm going to learn how to successfully use, you know what I mean? And I'm going to show and prove all of you. And I never found it. It was impossible. Um, I'd end up back in rehab or jail. And I'm telling you that, you know, by all means, try to find that solution, but there's used and that it's worked for. And that's a 12 step fellowship, AA, NA, CA, GA. I don't care what kind of A it is. 
Um, they all have a 12 step, you know what I mean? And that's where the magic is. You know what I mean? When I first came into recovery, um, I was speaking at a lot of different rehabs and I went back to the rehab that I went to and, uh, spoke at their alumni meeting. And these two like old heads went before me and they're like, a, 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 NA bullshit is just like ruckus and this and that. And I was going to NA. So it came my time to. And at first, the first thing I remember, like that, like yesterday, first thing I said was, I'm in NA. Yes, I'm loud. Yes, I cuss a lot. Yes, I'm fucking rowdy. But guess what? I don't care if it's A, A, C, A, N, A, H, A, G, A, whatever A you want to go to, as long as it's not K and A. <laughs> and people that aren't from Philly don't know that or from that area don't know that but um like it doesn't matter what program you use like I used to tell people all the time like I tried like I tried okay well it's my boyfriend if I'm not with this abusive boyfriend then I'll be I'll be clean I tried moving I tried um all kinds of different things that I was like okay well this is the problem no I was the problem and that was the constant. In every situation that I was in, I was the constant. I have three kids. One of them was born off of drugs. And, like, I used to, when I came to Gadenzia, I shared that. Like, I would have stepped over my kids to make sure that I was getting high. I was yeah. bringing drugs to a prison because I wanted to get high. Because I was at a low point in my life, and I didn't want to feel that pain of being raped by a sergeant and then I had to see him every day I didn't want to feel that so I put other people's lives at risk and when you reached out to me that's why I was like you know what like I have my part to play too you know and that's part of the fourth step like acknowledging the part that you play you know yeah and like yes I got fired yes I could have been charged I hurt a lot of people and any one of you that I was bringing those drugs in for could have overdosed and been dead. And then I would have been thinking, oh, well, <laughs> like, how, that would have been on my conscience, you know, like, because in my head, I justified it as, oh, well, it's just tobacco, just tobacco. No, damn right. Well, what's that fucking movie? The Transporter. He don't ever look in the package. Right. Right. I wasn't gonna look because I didn't want to know. I wanted to stay naive to the fact so that I could say if anything happened, oh well, I didn't know. So uh and like you said, like finding a program, you know, and working it. So like when I first came into NA, I was like, these people are too fucking happy. Like there is no way that they're not on drugs because you can't be that fucking happy. Like life fucking sucks. And then once I started seeing it, then I moved from, I was in the Clean Acres area, Chester County, Pennsylvania, and I moved, me and my husband got together. He got clean at the last stop in Philly, and we moved to Delaware. And Corinne, you had shared about being the cool kid in jail. (laughs) Like, this group of small wonder in Delaware, the first meeting we went to, there was a good hundred people there and nobody even spoke to us. Mm. Like knowing that we don't look like your brand, your average person. And 
nobody spoke to us. So I was like, listen, I need a sponsor in this area. I get a sponsor. She says, so I brought her up to her and she said, well, we just get so tired of new people coming and we get close to them. Then they relapse, go back out and get high. And I was like, um, if I would have got clean in this area, I wouldn't have fucking stayed because your job is to make people feel welcome so that they do stay not like ostracize them and like put, put them out. Like, Oh, well, you're not welcome here because we're tired of people going back out and getting high. So then she says to me, well, once you're in with the cool kids, then everybody will accept you. Oh, I said, <laughs> um, bitch, I am the cool kid. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're all fucking drug addicts. What the fuck you mean? Who's the cool people? Right. And then people were like, oh, well, I have social anxiety. I have um, whatever. I can't make friends. I don't like to talk to new people. I said, like, I would call them all out. Like, towards the end of us staying, like, in that area, people would, like, <laughs> they, I know they hated me, but I don't care because I'm like, you can talk all that Gucci shit, but what are you living? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's about attraction, not promotion. You can tell me all you want to tell me, but when I see that you're living your program, that's what I want to see. That's what I want to, that's what I want to model, you know? And I would tell people all the time, like, listen, like people are dying, dying. Mm. And you guys are worried about who the fucking cool people are. Yeah. And like it was very, and then when we moved to Tennessee, like we went to a few meetings. My husband's a big book guy. I'm a NA baby. And we went to a few meetings, really couldn't get in anywhere. You know, like it was just, I've got a couple girls' phone numbers and they wouldn't answer. And like where I got clean, I called my sponsor every day, every single day. And I learned very early on because very early on I substituted when I first got clean, I went and got all these piercings. I think at one time I had like 13 piercings. Wow. And I was being promiscuous. I just wanted to fill this hole, right? The drugs weren't there anymore, but I was still fucked up. <laughs> and they talk about that, like a clean, a dry, dry drunk. Just, you just take the alcohol away. They're still fucking fucked up you know and I tell people my family people look at me like now I'm working at an ambulance service I work on a fucking ambulance and people tell me like don't self-disclose because they'll judge you and I'm like listen like I'm not fucked up because I was a junkie I was a junkie because I was fucked up right like there was things that went on in my life that changed my chemistry changed how I now I'm working on this um, EMDR. It's um, to rewire your brain. And there's a guy in there that talks about a experience when he was young where his grandfather and him were walking down the street and they ran into one of his grandfather's friends and he started talking and telling a story. And his grandfather, his grandfather's friend told him, do you ever shut up? And so this guy now has trouble with public speaking, which sounds stupid, right? But his brain tells him, if I speak too much in front of people, 
it reverts back to that experience when he was a child. Right. My husband, I, like I've, I've shared in the past, um, I struggle with mental health. I struggle with addiction. I struggle with suicide, self-harm. And my husband, argument, I immediately go to self-harm. Mm. Immediately. And I, we, for a while, I couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out. And then my husband said, babe, <laughs> like, I'm not going nowhere. Like, my, my mind tells me if a man, if my partner is mad at me, he's going to beat the fuck out of me. He's going to cheat on me or he's leaving me. And I have problems with abandonment. So that's what my lowest point is. So when you can recognize... This is like you said, like you have to take like responsibility, right? And and when you can recognize when I went to rehab, not many people know this, but I was in NA for a good probably six months before I went to rehab. Oh, and wow. I was the entire time. I had a sponsor. Christmas Eve, I went to my sponsor's house, shot heroin in the driveway with my two kids in the car, went in her house, she checked off my name. I leave. The day after Christmas, my family does an intervention. I go to rehab. She bought me Christmas presents for my kids. She bought me food for my house. I was spending all my money and all my food stamps I was selling for drugs. And my sponsor and my grand sponsor were supporting me. And I was lying. So when I got out of rehab and I went to my first meeting that night, it was my sponsor's home group. And she was chairing. And I said, I need to get honest. Because if I'm not honest with every aspect of my life, I might as well go, go get high because I'm not far behind. And so I got honest and I told everything. Like, I lied to you. This is what I got. I'm just, I was out of control. When I went to rehab, I was 89 pounds. When I came home, I was 120. So I gained a good 30, 40 pounds in rehab. And... After the meeting, my sponsor came up to me and she said, I knew you were getting high. Aww. And I said, what? Like, because I'm a real person and I need people to be real with me because I haven't sponsored anybody. But if I was a sponsor and you came to my house and I knew you were high, I would not check off no names because guess what? We're not even on a step one yet. And so at that point, I knew I needed to get a new sponsor and like recognizing what your needs are in your recovery and working through that. You know, like I tell people all the time, they're like, how, like, what's the difference between being in a relationship with an, another addict or with somebody that doesn't understand addiction? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't think that I could be in a relationship with somebody that didn't understand that I'm fucking cuckoo crazy. That yes. I can't go get one bag. <laughs> I can't snort an eight ball of Coke on the weekend. Um, but on the flip side of that, when I'm 20%, I need my husband to be 80%. And yeah. because we're both addicts, sometimes that's a challenge. 
And if we're both having a bad day, you better hope that it's not payday. (laughs) Because, like, it's sometimes it's a toxic mix. But um, communication and, like I said, just seeing, recognizing things um, and being able to address them in a healthy way. Because as addicts, we've never really done anything in a healthy way. It's always been to an extreme or not at all. Um, I remember when I was in rehab, I, my defense mechanism was to joke around, make everybody laugh. Cause if everybody's laughing, nobody's really paying attention to what the real issue is. So I would walk into the cafeteria singing every morning and my cousin was in there with me. So it was like, we had a time of our life. I was doing stick and pokes in rehab for cigarettes. Um, and they thought they caught me, but they really didn't. But still, so they were threatening to kick me out for doing stick and pokes. Right. And I lost my whole shit. Like, I was about to walk 12 miles home. And I didn't need to hear anything they had to say. I was fucking done. I didn't have anything in their lockbox. So I was like, I'm leaving. I don't give a fuck. So I ended up staying um, after they then realized that what they found was paint markers and not tattoo equipment. But anyway, <laughs> um, long story short, like two weeks into rehab, um, this guy came to speak. And he brought like six people from his recovery house in Levittown and so they all speak 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 and I'm sitting there like look at these fucking fuck boys like these fucking Delco fuck boys ain't got shit the same to me like you know like because I'm better than this and I'm sitting there in the front row and then they said Justin you got six minutes you think you can share in six minutes and I yell six minutes Dougie fresh you're on and he blasted the fuck out of me. <laughs> and I'm sitting in the front row of rehab with like 80 fucking people in this barn. And he said, my name's not Dougie Fresh. My name's Justin. And you're just a scared little girl. And at that moment was my turning point of, yes, I am fucking scared. Because I used to say all, all the time. Remember Lisa Johnson in, fucking, in the prison? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I rented a room from her at one point in my addiction and she wanted to fight me one day. And she, Lisa was a big girl. Yeah. And I was like, I ain't, I'm not afraid. Like I've never backed down from no man or no woman. I'm not afraid of nothing. Please. I'm right here. Come stop me. I want you to. And I used to say that like all the time, but like when he said that to me, I was like, you're right. I am a scared little girl. Like I don't want to die. The only reason why I went for rehab was because my family said to me, your kids are going to be visiting you at a grave. I was narking in front of my kids twice. I went to a little abandonment in Kensington to buy drugs with my kids in the car with it running. And when I came out, this big black dude put a gun to my head and said, give me everything you've got. My daughter was five at the time and she was banging on the window saying, mommy, please don't. Please. She was just screaming and crying, banging on the window. And I said to the dude, you might as well kill me because the thought of being dope sick right now is way worse. And hey, (laughs) sorry. Um, So that shame and guilt 
of what my kids saw um, really ate me up in early recovery. And I had a sponsor that was awesome. And she said, every day that you get up and you're the mom that you need to be, that's your amends. Yeah. And like, you staying clean, Corinne, is your amends. You know, like, <laughs> I lost my job. I lost, I ended up leaving my daughter's father that I was with at that time. I didn't go to jail. Nothing was really taken from me. Um, I went, like, I, I, there's nothing that can make amends to the past between us. But you staying clean and you being what you need to be for others, you know, like, be that source of support for others. Share your story. Let them know, like, hey, listen, get in the H&I and go share your story at prisons, at rehab. Yeah. Because there's somebody out there that's doing the same shit right now. And that's that's where the hope is at. And um, if you reach one person, you know, like, when I, when I tell them about my podcast, I'm like, it just gives us a voice, you know, like, make some fucking noise. And all the social media, TikTok, and the news, it's all about these pedophiles or... Oh, where the fuck are the survivors? Right. Where who making the noise for people that yes, there's this many deaths to overdose this year. How many fucking people found recovery though? Right. Because meetings every single day of the fucking year, 24 hours a day, even during COVID, they were doing video meetings and Zoom meetings and Where's everybody that, that has found recovery who can share with that, that person that's still hurting, still sick, and give them the hope that there's, there's a better day coming, you know? And, and my first home group used to say somebody with an hour clean can help somebody that has 10 years clean. Um, and that's always stuck out in my head because when people say, oh, well, you got four years clean. Yeah, but guess what? Sometimes I need to see that sick and suffering addict to remind myself where I came from. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I really thank you for um, speaking for me, Corinne. Was there anything else you wanted to share? No, I uh, just wanted to thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this for you. And, uh, you know, just remind everybody that, like, there is a different way you know what I mean and uh it's a lot it's a lot less painful and it's a lot um it's a lot more um you know it's it's just more beautiful it's 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 a way more beautiful life filled with so much joy you know what I mean and that's really it that's awesome thank you so much Corinne and um I'll just say again, if you're interested in being a guest on my podcast, get in touch with me, send me a message on Anchor or TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, find me somewhere um, and we will definitely set it up. Um, Get healing, give healing and share that hope. 
All righty. Until next time, guys, stay blessed. Thanks. Thank you.